Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. This is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Just a quick whip around this week of tennis talk. Jamie is here. Welcome, Jamie. Nice to uh, nice to reconnect with you. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Bit of a crazy week, but uh, the tours have left the United States for Europe. We are now in the throes of clay season. We've got sort of a lot of swirling issues. I figured we would just uh, use this week to kind of orient ourselves and figure out where tennis is um, in mid-April in this uh, 2021 AD. What do you think? Yeah, it's a good place to start because we've got tennis happening. We've got, you know, tournaments that just concluded. And of course, the, the French Open, which is the next major on the calendar, was pushed a week later. So the the timing of everything again this year is, is being shuffled a bit. So it's interesting to see, particularly with, with certain players who have either taken you know, a longer layoff than normal or they're just uh, you know playing back-to-back tournaments. It's interesting to see how all of the players are handling everything differently. So why don't we start there? I mean, I think that, I think that's a good point. I think there's sort of a, a bigger existential question that six months ago we were wringing our hands and should tennis come back and how should it come back? And even at the start of the year, there was discussion about the Australian Open and the 14-day quarantine. I, mean, I feel like we've happily moved beyond that, but I, but I still think there's some you know strange times and we've seen some players really struggle. And uh, I, I wrote this week, tennis accommodates a, a wide diversity of physique, which is one of the uh, the great virtues of the sport. And you have, you know, a, a guy in the top 10 in Diego Schwartzman, who is maybe generously five foot seven. You've also got players that are almost seven feet tall. You've got players with much different body types. But I think we're also seeing that we have different players with different psychic makeups. And some players are playing through this pandemic quite easily, uh, sort of going from event to event. I'm thinking, you know, Rublev and Tsitsipas and uh, a number of players who are just kind of dealing with it. And you have other players who are really seem to be waylaid. And this has really been, um, you know, sort of a, a crowbar in their momentum. Uh, you know, we can go through the names. I mean, Benoit Pair is obviously an extreme example who every week seems to find a, a new way to express his frustration. But even, you know, Dominic Team won a major within the last year and he's won all of five matches this year. Novak Djokovic actually was talking about him and basically sort of said, uh, I don't have the quote in front of me. He was very empathetic and basically said, look, we need to give people a wide berth because these are, uh, these are strange times. And this is, this is all of which is a uh, sort of a big windup to ask you, where are you with tennis? Um, we're, we're playing tournaments, as you say, the calendar is kind of the calendar with some alterations, but it's weird. Where, where are you as a fan of this sport? Sort of where, where are you in relation to tennis right now? Yeah, I, I feel like I have a two-part answer to that question. One, because um, as we've talked about previously on the podcast, as a result of the pandemic, um, I guess it is a, is a result of the pandemic, uh, you know, being in lockdown, not really be able to go, um, a lot of places then also really wanting to enjoy a lot of the outdoors in the past year or so I've really started to play a lot more tennis than I've used to, than I used to um so I am really into tennis I guess uh from from that perspective more so and that has that obviously translates over to 
to being a fan and, and watching the pros and watching the game. So um, on one side, uh, I would say that my level of interest in the, in the sport is uh, maybe at an all time high. Um, I'm again, I'm trying to work on my own forehand and, you know, it's interesting to watch and see how other players um, do it themselves. And, and, uh, you know, you have a new appreciation from the game for the game when you've, you know, been out there for an hour hitting balls yourself. So on that side um, that, you know, that's, that's one part of it. But I think the other part is that to, to, you know, the point that you said Djokovic made about Dominic team and the fact that the schedule is still sort of in flux and changed. I think it is harder um, to appreciate or watch the tournaments with the same through the same lens as before. You know, I feel like there are a lot of asterisks or just, um, you know, we're like, well, who's playing or, you know, who's not playing, who's getting their vaccine, who's, you know, just staying home, who didn't make the trip. There's all these questions that you sort of ask when um, certain tournaments are happening. And, you know, as we talk about the French open being delayed a week, it's, it's, um, you know, there's still this possibility and there's still this, this threat and this, uh, you know, feeling of, of the coronavirus and the impact it could have on the tour. So I think for me that has, um, impacted me in the opposite direction uh, in, in how I'm watching it, if that all makes sense. <laughs> you in uh, a 22% uptick across the board, at least in the US, uh, th that is the silver lining to all this, that tennis, uh, as far as participation has had this real surge. Um, you hope people will, uh, will stick with it. I found that Djokovic, I mean, here's Djokovic on team. And I thought this was, you know, this is a question out of the blue. It wasn't like this was a social media post. Um, he was asked about team who, who pulled out of the, the tournament in Serbia, play, played at the Novak Djokovic tennis facility. I'll have, uh, you know, a little strange to, uh, we've seen active players as tournament directors. Seldom have we seen active players playing in the stadium names for them. But uh, here's, <laughs> Dom, here's Djokovic on team. He's a star, a great person, a Grand Slam champion. Most of the players are experiencing mental and motivational issues because of the bubbles and playing behind closed doors. We have to accept the situation. He goes on. Um, yeah, I mean, even the top players, I, I think, are struggling with this. And um, we have seen players with much different reactions and feelings about getting vaccinated. Again, some players have played through this like it's a, like it's a windy day and it's no big deal and it's sort of an occupational twist. Okay. And we've seen other players who have really been clearly hamstrung and, and waylaid. And I think we sort of need a, a wide berth when assessing everyone. I mean, everyone's responding to Corona, not just in tennis, not just in sports. I mean, in I was gonna say, tennis, we're all, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost as with many other things, uh, you know, a microcosm for everything else going on. I mean, you have individuals who work in certain jobs that may not have the luxury to treat coronavirus differently or treat this pandemic differently. As you said to them, they're, you know, still going to work, still doing everything. It's just like a, a, a windy day, right? But uh, for others, we've, you and I in particular, we don't go to our office anymore. Things have changed and we have our own bubbles. And, and as Djokovic said, the different issues, whether it's, you know, in terms of mental or how we're working, things like that. And so it really is representative. You know, we talked a little bit about this in terms of vaccines it's really hard to have, have judgment for such a global sport. And I think that that plays a huge role here. Whether it is pandemic related, whether it's a function of age, whether it's just one of these things, whether we ought to be uh, spending more time complimenting the opposition, we are coming off a week in which both Djokovic and Nadal 
entered the same tournament and not only did both of them lose, but both of them lost before the semifinals. This of course was in Monte Carlo where Djokovic lost to Disco Dan Evans, which I, I thought was quite a sensational upset. Um, Djokovic, again, to his credit, uh, was extraordinarily gracious in defeat and basically said, you know, I had a terrible day at the office, but all credit to him. And then that was not dissimilar from what happened the very next day when Nadal lost to Rublev. Uh, so we're we're coming off a strange week in which both Nadal and Djokovic lost at a tournament that uh, combined they'd won, you know, 14 times, I think it was. What do we make of them? How much are we worried where do you see, uh, I mean, it's, we, we always play this game every year where one of them loses and we say, oh, is it time for a new champion at the French Open? Um, I don't think we should necessarily be prepared to go that far, but uh, Jamie, what do you think of a week in which both Djokovic and Nadal lose at a non-major? What do you think of that? Yeah, I, I immediately go to the activity tab, you know, on the, on their player pages. Um, if you look back through, through the years, I mean, when was the last time these players barring injury or something serious that they, the only two, you know, what is it? It's nearly, nearly May here. The only two tournaments on their activity log for, for the year are the Australian open and then all the way to April for, for Monte Carlo. So for me, that long layoff, that not playing in a tournament after a while. I mean, we've all heard of the rust and, you know, shaking off everything. And it, to me, I am not necessarily worried. It's been a really long time since they've, they've played. I think a lot of other players have the opposite. So you, again, we talk about these difference of how people are organizing their schedules and the decisions they're making about the tournaments they're playing. Um, I'm not necessarily worried. And I think we always talk about this specifically for Nadal, um, you know, ahead of the French Open. I do not worry so much about his pre-lead up results uh, leading up to Roland Garros. He's he's dominant there and I don't think it matters. And I've, I've said this in the past, but I think he actually sometimes benefits from a loss or a few extra days between starting his campaign uh, in Paris than, you know, if he continued and won all the way through for a lead up. We've seen both happen and we've seen him win, you know, in Paris every time. So I'm not, I'm not concerned. Like clockwork, Jamie, as you were speaking, I have an alert that he has defeated Nishikori in, uh, in three sets in Barcelona. So uh, onward we go with Nadal. Um, so I, I was, um, I, I did a week with Tennis Channel on the, on the shows with, uh, with Steve Weissman and Chanda, and I was really struck by this Charleston 2 result, as we're calling it. This was sort of the, the tournament that followed the conventional Charleston. Um, much different type of draw, much different prize money. Anz Jabur was the number one seed and played terrifically, got to the final, then she met Astra Sharma. Um, do you know much about Astra Sharma, Jamie? Because you're forgiven if you don't. She is still, even after winning the title, ranked outside the top hundred. But uh, I, I want to uh, want to spend a minute here with a, a player I really grew to admire. Do you, do you know much about her? I I don't, and I was going to ask you about her. I know that she is, you know, yet another first time, you know, WTA title winner here, uh, which we've we've come to see a lot of on the women's side. But tell me more. <laughs> She um, went to Vanderbilt to play college tennis. Um, I don't know if you, you remember, we had, we had Jeff, we had the Vanderbilt coach on uh, 
maybe 18 months ago or so on right. the podcast. Um, you know, she's, she was born in Singapore. She has sort of Asian and Australian background. She goes to Vanderbilt. She's pre-med and she has some injuries and her game just kind of starts to click once she gets healthy. She's a very fun player to watch. She's athletic. She's almost six feet tall. She has this great kick serve. And she was, I thought, so A, entertaining, B, just kind of lovely. There was a, a minute, I don't know if you can win, when in the previous event when the umpire, the chair lost track of the score, which is, I, I would say, if not unforgivable, uh, a very strange offense for an official. Um, right. And Astra Sharma handled that with a fair amount of dignity. She took the high road, she came back, she wins this event, her first title. She's still ranked 120. So it's not as though she pops on a plane, goes to Stuttgart and starts playing main events of WTA. But I, I thought it, A, it was just sort of a, a real focus on a player who I thought was very easy to like. I think it's nice to see college tennis getting yet another pop. It's nice to see a player with an all-court game. She plays a lot of doubles. She serves in volleys. She's athletic. She's got a lot of variety. She's coached by David Taylor, which probably not coincidentally um, fellow Australian, but he also coached Sam Stoser, who um, their games are, are not dissimilar. But it's just one of these reminders that there are a lot of really special players and special people out there, and they're not necessarily on the Serena, Roger, Rafa, Novak celebrity track. But to me, it was just sort of a really heartening reminder of why I like this sport so much. We don't root, but uh, it was um, it, it was very heartening to see Astra Sharma. How's that? Yeah, for sure. I, I totally agree. I was going to say it's one of the reasons we love this sport, right? We have uh, these titans, we have these, you know, goats, and you've got everyone in between with their own story. And then we always, throughout the year, have have stories like this where someone, you know, unexpected comes through. And uh, as you said, it was nice to see um, her do that. And in in a very dominant fashion. I believe she only dropped two sets throughout the tournament, right? Um, you're right. And as, lo as long as we're here, you want, you want another one? As long as we're in this space? You're, yeah. You want, me, you want me to keep going on the same, uh, the same theme? We're not going to, after the year we had, we're not going to deny any heartwarming stories here. So keep them coming. So, so here's one for you. Um, gosh, so Sports Illustrated used to have something called ad text which was basically extra pages that went to subscribers in wealthy zip codes. I feel like, I feel like the statute of limitations is off. And now that, uh, you know, now that it's 10 years plus down the road, we can talk about it. Um, so there used to be an extra section of Sports Illustrated that basically was sort of premium content that advertisers paid for premium zip codes. And you had to, I'm getting to a point, so stick with me here. Um, you know, you needed stories to fill those extra pages. And for those of us that were younger, it was a great chance to, so you weren't going to write the Super Bowl, but this was a great chance to just do some writing and get out on the road. Um, Jeff Perlman and I uh, sort of feasted on these stories and often talk about what, uh, how much fun they were. I did a story, gosh, I mean, this must have been easily 15 years ago on a young man in Florida who had a state ranking in tennis, golf, and chess. And his parents were, uh, were, were refugees and then immig were immigrants from Africa and they'd settled in Florida and they had this remarkable son, Seku Bangura. And it was a fun story. Here's this kid, he goes from chess class and chess tournaments to golf tournaments to tennis tournaments. And you know, you think Tiger Woods has talent but here's a guy who's trying to balance it all. I I'm looking at my ATP, uh, my live app 
and here I see that 29, almost 30 years old, Sekou Bangura is playing in the Tallahassee Challenger, playing doubles with <laughs> Donald Young. They won their match. And, you know, this is a 13, 14-year-old kid. When I talk to him, and here he is approaching age 30, um, you know, he, he has not made millions and millions of dollars as a pro tennis player, but he's had a respectable career. He's still going. He's playing in Tallahassee this week, and I got such a surge of joy seeing Sekou Bangura Jr., almost 30 years old, playing professional tennis. I wonder if he still plays golf and chess. Yeah, that, I was just going to ask you that. Uh, that's amazing. I was hoping that's that's where you were going with this story, uh, that he was still playing tennis, and we should do some Googling to see if he's also uh, ranked in, in chess or perhaps playing some golf. That's awesome. That's really cool. That's my, uh, that's my story of the day. Um, last week, we had a podcast with Andrea Godenzi. I don't, I don't know if you... Had a chance. I know. Thank you very much for uh, your editing prowess and, and handiwork. I don't know if you how closely you listened, but I did want to circle back on that. I've gotten a bunch of mail, and I wondered if you, Jamie, had uh, had thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was an interesting conversation. I know you. I, I felt as if you pulled back a little bit on on pushing on certain issues. You know, rightfully so in in the conversation as to not you know drag on certain points. But I thought he he had a very interesting perspective. I think his journey, you know, and, and what he's been through and where he's worked and his experience as a tennis player, I think is very interesting. And he brought, you know, he, he, he brought a lot of interesting points to the table. I'm not sure the Spotify analogy fully applies there. Um, and there were some things that I, I wanted to, you know, question or ask a, a follow-up question on, but I thought it was an interesting uh, conversation for sure. And, you know, it's, uh, an important one to have. I think we don't normally hear from people in, in his position often. So I was glad that we got a, um, you know, a, a voice like that on the podcast in between some of these others. I don't know if you saw a, a few days ago, the story crossed about the PGA tour was going to have a bonus pool and they were going to basically distribute this bonus pool among the players that drive attention. So this was, wasn't going to be about who won the most points and who won the majors and uh, who had the highest, you know, who, who had the highest rankings. This was going to be about things like Google search and which players drove television revenue and which players drove, drove viewership. It was sort of a, a marketing bonus pool of, of $40 million to, to split among players. And I read that and I wondered if that doesn't get us to a place where we can combine these tours, which everyone agrees we ought to do. We can get over the stupid issue of equal prize money, where in the grand scheme of things, it's not that much money. It's the right thing to do. And if you have a certain bonus pool where a Serena, Roger, or Rafa will get rewarded for being Serena, Roger, and Rafa, do we address Andrea Godenzi's concerns about what the market bears and about tar targeting stars? Um, I thought it was really interesting and I'm interested to see how this goes in golf. I mean, I think the problem with the Spotify model and just to be clear, I'm glad you brought it up, Jamie, but the, the, I mean, this is sort of a, you know, it's a response to equal prize money, which is essentially, look, when we buy Spotify, the artists don't get paid equally. The ones who bring value get more money. Um, that I've seen used as, as a way to parry equal prize money and sort of say, look, the men bring in more money when they combine, why should everybody be paid equal? And my response to that is, if you go down that slippery slope, we're going to start 
paying everybody differently. And Ro Roger Federer packs in fans a lot differently than Andre Rublev ranking be damned. Then we're just going to have an all out popularity contest. Right. So right. I, I, I wonder if this bonus pool doesn't sort of solve this problem. Serena gets paid extra because she's Serena. Naomi Osaka gets paid extra because she's Naomi Osaka. It gives players an incentive to market themselves. If they don't, they don't get penalized. You know, if you want to be Pete Sampras and Steffi Graf, you're entitled to. You just won't get this bonus money. And this is a way we can address concerns about the market. The stars get paid. And we can get on with this business of going to market with one product and not seven or eight. How's that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's the key. I think the biggest point and, you know, takeaway from that conversation uh, just overall is that, you know, you guys mentioned it's, you know, we're, we're playing the same, the men and women playing the same tournaments, you know, the calendar is, is the same. It's the same product. And as you always say, um, you know, someone who is a fan of Serena Williams is not asking who the Spanish player is. They're not asking who's, who's this Djokovic guy, you know, it's, it's not like that. And so I think that's the biggest um, strength for this sport. It's just a matter of, you know, as you guys talked about trying to figure out the best uh, way to combine them and, and ultimately monetize and grow the sport, which is of course what everyone in his position and other, you know, top execs are trying to figure out. When I first started covering the sport, um, not all the majors paid equal prize money. And Wimbledon had this, I mean, it wasn't even based on data. I mean, it just seemed so arbitrary. And the women were paid something like 94% of the men. So I'm, I'm trying to get my math right. Well, Amelie Moresmo wins Wimbledon and makes, you know, whatever, a uh, million dollars. I, I don't think it was that many. You know, Amelie Moresmo wins and gets a million and Roger Federer wins and gets a million sixty. And I'm just thinking from in 2021, from a read the room perspective, any event at which men and women are competing simultaneously, as you say, they're essentially interchangeable. The TV coverage toggles back and forth without paying any mind. You have officials working for the same players. You have, you know, match match A is Serena Williams and she's followed by Rafa Nadal. The court assignments are men, women, men, women. The notion that they would be paid anything other than equal is so wildly tone deaf, is so begging to incite controversy, and so just sort of at odds with where we are right now. I, I just can't see, even if you didn't believe that men and women should be paid fairly, and even if you bought this sort of best of five nonsense, and even if you sort of just from strictly from a PR perspective, I can't imagine how you would be out there advocating for this. And I also think if you just get past this stupid threshold issue, the whole business model opens up. And then we can talk about efficiencies on the website like Andrea Gudenzi did. And then we can talk about, you know, what, why did the WTA and the ATP negotiate separately with Tennis Channel and ESPN? Go to, go to market as a consolidated product. I, I just think once you get past this stupid issue, which is really sort of outlived. I mean, it's, it's embarrassing we're even having this discussion. Once you get past that and you get some of these sort of dinosaurs to come around, the doors open up. And it's just from where I sit and having seen this for 20 years, it's just maddening that this is what's holding the sport back in 2021. Right. Anyway, that, uh, that about does it. I've, I've actually got to do some... some uh, 60 minutes audio stuff. So I've, I've got to run. 
We got we got through a number of topics. Uh, hopefully next week we will have more matches and results. We may have uh, titles for both Nadal and Djokovic who are in action this week. We may have results for neither. Roger Federer released his schedule. Um, not a lot of uh, Serena Williams and or Naomi Osaka news. Um, keeping with our theme, Jamie, of a strange year, the two most marketable female players have um, been awfully quiet since Australia, but um, you know, we'll hopefully see some uh, reemergences in, in Europe and in Paris in particular. Yeah, I was going to say, so it goes this, you know, this season. And as we, I think we'll see this sort of um, play out over the next few years, truthfully, as people um, continue to find their comfort levels and um, vaccinated, not vaccinated, uh, you know, different, different personal life uh, things that may occur. I mean, there's a lot of factors. So I think we'll be seeing the impact of, you know, the pandemic and, and everything on the schedule and on player decision-making for a long time to come, but we've still got a, you know, good chunk of the year of tennis and we're, we're turning the corner into the, you know, the, the busy season, I guess you can say. So we'll, uh, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. The other thing we didn't mention and, and will in coming weeks is uh, Tokyo Olympics, which is uh, just, just when the year <laughs> necessarily need more wrinkles uh we have that to contend with as well um all right that uh that does it for this week always a pleasure my friend thank you uh thanks for joining thanks for your producing and uh we'll we'll do it again soon